We just commented on this the other day when one of my kids didn't want to do the dishes or something. And we were like, at your age, you'd be married off exactly. with children working on the farm. You could do the dishes. Yeah, I've tried to, I've tried to pull that with, uh, with, with my kids. <laughs> it didn't work. No, doesn't it work. doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Signal, the podcast that raises your frequency. I'm Maury Fontanez. And I'm Melissa Grushka. Being this week, we have an exciting conversation with a very special guest who's going to talk to us about AI, identity, gender, sexuality, everything. You name it. You ready? I am so ready. Okay, let's do it. Hey, Bean, what's up? What's shaking? I say that every week. You do, but this week is a special week because we have it's really shaken. It's really shaken. We have such a special guest. We are not going to delay in getting to him. We have with us the author of the book, Who Are We Now? Blaze Aguera y Arcas, who is the CTO of Tech and Society at Google, joining us to talk about his book, about AI, about gender and sexuality, and how it all intersects. Blaze, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. We are very excited to talk to you, Blaze. I think that this show could be three hours long because this book is so fascinating. So we, we'll try not to keep you here for three hours. But um, before we get into the millions of questions we have for you, we like to play a little game to fill each other in on our week, which is cringe or delight, something embarrassing or something delightful that happened to you this week, um, just so we can catch up. So we'll let you chat with us and listen to ours, and then we'll have you go last. Does that sound good? Absolutely. All right, cool. Bean, what do you have? Cringe? Delight? I have a delight. It's not really related to me. It's just something I experienced, and I thought it was really lovely to experience it in person. My mother is currently undergoing radiation, and we were at the hospital on one of the days this week, and somebody there rang the bell, which I know symbolizes the end of their final treatment, and they are done with their cancer treatment. And I've never, I've seen videos, and it's it's always lovely to watch, but seeing it in person, I mean, I had goosebumps head to toe. All the nurses were out in the hallway. They rang it. Everyone was clapping. I didn't even see the human, and I was still crying. It just felt really powerful in the moment to experience that live. That's really beautiful. Wow. <laughs> so do something weird and cringy. I know. Now I'm embarrassed to talk about my week. You're like, my mail broke. Yeah, literally, it's that dumb. <laughs> that is really beautiful. And you know what? There is something about being there in that shared space of energy yes. when that's happening versus hearing about it. So I can feel like the energy that you feel in that moment with that person there. That's really lovely. I even have goosebumps just uh, discussing it again. I love it. All right. Well. I'll get into my cringe. Yeah. So as you know, Bean, Blaze, you don't know this because we just met. I have started working out early in the mornings. I do not wake up early, but my neighbors and good friends pick me up on their way and they take me in the workout classes on the beach. (laughs) So what's to hate about it? Right. Yeah. So anyway, it's this like weight class, weightlifting with kettlebells. And I am this noob among these women who have been doing it. So all of the exercises she teaches, she keeps having to stop and be like, but Maury, you do this with the two pound weight. But Maury, you do this with no weight. And last week, or was it Wednesday, they were doing a bunch of like really hard stuff. And I was just laying there with no weights trying to even figure out how like some of these exercises, my brain can't understand the movements of 
that's how I feel like is going to happen today when we chat with Blaze and his (laughs) utmost intelligence. I feel like my body and brain are just not going to compute properly. This is the most intimidated I have been on our podcast yet, Blaze. I'd like you to know. That book is so amazing. It's. I was like, what will I share? He already knows everything. Uh, It's true. I will attest to that. (laughs) That's that's incredibly, incredibly kind of you two to say. (laughs) It's the truth. Well, before we get into it, Blaze, tell us about your week. Anything delightful or embarrassing that happened to you? Well, I I guess it's, it's a little Pollyanna, but the first thing that comes to mind is that our younger kiddo got into... Uh, their first uh, college. <gasps> oh, congratulations, yeah. Pollyanna! That's exciting. Yeah, it was. It, it it felt like kind of a big deal. Absolutely. So that that, that was mine. That's that's great. lovely. Are they applying to multiples, and do they have a dream school that they're hoping yeah, for? Yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody, yeah. you know, nowadays seems to apply to hundreds. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, there there are a lot, but you know, this this kid is <laughs> is looking for a place that that teaches you know Sumerian and Hittite and Akkadian and whatnot, and you know, is very into this wow. you know, kind of very esoteric stuff. And so there are a handful of places wow. that, uh, that that do that, and they got into into one of the places with <gasps> a really, really really good program along those lines. So wow! Oh my god! I mean, no surprise, but your kid also sounds fascinating. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. I do what have I was to thinking. say the joke on this podcast is that I'm such a history nerd, but Sumerian history is so fascinating to me. It's pretty out to lunch, isn't it? It is, <laughs> and I love the fact that they're gonna they want to focus yeah, on me it too. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Blaze. Without further ado, let's talk about this incredible book. So, as I said up top, you've written this book. Who are we now? And it is this incredible book about the intersection of. AI, of identity, of gender, of sexuality. I would love to start talking um, and hearing from you about why this book, why this intersection? Uh, it's, you know, you, you talk about in this book how this is a result of around four years of survey research that you did with people around identity. How did you get to the space of, of gender and sexuality? And why is this book so important to you right now? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great first question to ask and, and not an easy one because it's a project yeah. that, you know, I, I kind of fell into it for various reasons. Um, and my reasons for doing it evolved. Uh, as it went along, so um, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's been about a, you know at least a six-year project. I began in 2016, so wow. um, I, I guess if I really zoom out, the reason that I ended up spending so much time doing this project is because I feel like we're in the middle of a really big transition as a species and as a planet. From a planetary point of view, you know, we're at this moment when human activities are um, having an effect on on the planet at planetary scale. Uh, you know, people sometimes call that the Anthropocene. It's like a you know, an actual geological epoch in which suddenly human activity is sort of the dominant factor in in, in the planet's fate. And um, sadly, well, sadly and dot dot dot. I mean, I think it's complicated. <laughs> you know, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm as worried about 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 climate collapse as anybody. But but I think it's I think it's more than just a story of you know I don't know of, of the human rape of nature or something we're we're part of nature, and and that's also mm-hmm. that's also part of the book's story the sense that symbiosis is kind of the driving force that that has led all of the big changes in in, in life on Earth that is to say you know living things uh, working together to create uh, something greater. Than, than themselves. Mm. And, uh, and that also feels like something that is happening right now in the context of AI, 
So, um, you know, AI is also a, a big, you know, I believe a big evolutionary transition for us. And, Absolutely. Um, and, and I guess, and I guess, finally, uh, you know, and to connect it a little bit more with the with the gender and sexuality piece, you know, there, there's also been a ten thousand year trend of humans basically pushing up against the limits of reproduction, like every other species on Earth, trying to just grow uh, as fast as possible and being held in check by Darwinian forces, you know, by by disease and and starvation. And as we've developed all of these technologies and, and lifted those constraints, our numbers, you know, really exploded. But right. now in this century, we're poised to, you know, for our numbers to actually start going down uh, for the first time due to choice rather than due to constraint. Uh, and that also feels like part of that same big transition. So that's the way in which I feel like, you know, the, the, the planetary transitions and the gender and sexuality transitions are actually connected. Wow. Interesting. Fascinating connections. And you know, what I would love to do is try to take our listeners through this beautiful arc you do in the book of discussing identity. Uh, and you talk about in this book how, you know, human identity and the othering that is accompanying our attempts to distinguish us versus them is really prevalent right now, particularly in our politics. Yeah. Uh, but you really do a fabulous job of narrowing that down historically and even to our own systems as human beings. And I was really particularly struck by your discussion of American family systems and how they're based on you know, a nuclear family, right? And what I thought was so interesting as someone who works with people on speaking their truth and living their truth and being individuals is you talk about how this nuclear system really comes at a cross current to individualism. Can you just say a little bit more about that for our listeners? Can you fill them in about that kind of intersection? Sure. Well, uh, nuclear families, I mean, everybody kind of assumes that they're they're sort of a default. They're the way things work. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk a little bit in the book about like the old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, the, the Flintstones, the Jetsons. Mm -hmm, I loved that. Uh, you know, it, it was funny because like, I mean, I certainly grew up with that. I grew up with them in, in, in uh, I, I saw them dubbed into Spanish and in, in, in Mexico and stuff. And, <laughs> and um, the, the kind of joke or the premise of that was like, yeah, technology changes, you know, Stone Age, Space Age, but you know, the family is the, is the invariant thing. Like that's just always been, it's always been the right. same. Uh, and right. and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, the um, I mean, and this was a bit of a surprise for me also doing the research for this book. A lot of our ideas about nuclear families are actually pretty new. Uh, you know, many of them uh, arise in the Victorian period, and uh, and the story of how they are, how they arose is you know is complicated. It, it has partly to do with Christianity and with property laws and inheritance, and right. with uh, and with the, the decline of clan structures, which were much more uh, sort of collectivist. Uh, and 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 it's had a lot of consequences, uh, you know, some of which some of which have been really important in the history of urbanization and technology and so on. But uh, but all of that feels like it's changing now, right? Right. I mean, there, there have been a lot of articles in the news about like the falling apart of the nuclear family and all these new relationship models that are springing up. The fact that so many fewer people in the city, especially, are uh, are getting married and are right. having kids. So, right. you know, so talking about the nuclear family as sort of something bounded in time that both you know came at a certain moment. We still assume is normal, but that is now possibly, you know, on the decline. Yeah, is, is one of the themes. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was so interesting how you laid that across also the line of generational, you know, changes, what's happening with Gen Z versus older generations and also urban and rural. In the survey, can you talk a little bit actually about the surveys you did over those four years and how they 
uh, enlightened you around where we're moving around identity? Yeah, of course. It's, as you say, four years or actually about six years of surveys, but there were four years when I ran kind of the same one repeatedly so that I could, you know, look at changes over time uh, as as well as within a cohort. And the book is basically divided into three parts. uh, And and, and the reason was that I wanted to have sort of like a practice run in, in talking about what identity is all about and how it works. And the practice run I, w- was about handedness, uh, just left-handedness, mm-hmm. right-handedness. I never- So interesting. It was, it was, it was interesting to it's me fascinating, too. Fascinating, yeah. I wasn't expecting it to be interesting. So I, I, never, I never thought that, that I'd you know, actually uh, published that part, but there were so many surprises in it that I thought, you know, this, this, is, worth, this is worth putting in the book too, uh, you know, both to introduce the methods and to start talking about how identity works in a way that's a little bit less fraught, you know, than gender and sexuality, which is obviously a huge hot mm-hmm. topic. Right. I found that would be really relatable, I thought, too, the left-handedness. It's it's way less yeah. abstract, I think, to people. It's very it's a little more concrete to understand. Totally. And and everybody understands that with handedness, you know, there are behaviors like, you know, which hand you use totally. with the scissors. Uh, or that you write with, there's an identity. You know, do you say I'm a left-handed person? I'm a right-handed person, and there's there's some biology involved, right? There there's something about brain lateralization that's involved there too. So it's kind of uncontroversial that way, and and it lets you know it lets one have a conversation about the relationships between those kinds of variables uh, without too much anxiety about misstepping. Yeah. Beautiful. So you started with that. And then tell us how the surveys evolved over time. And, you know, you're collecting this information. Are you thinking about a hypothesis? Are you thinking about an end game here? What's happening as you're collecting the data and and what's starting to come out around how we're looking at identity right now in our culture? Yeah, uh, great question. I I didn't begin with a strong hypothesis. A lot of this was, was curiosity driven. You know, I, I'm I'm kind of a data scientist, I guess, at heart, and and I didn't begin with with any really strongly held ideas about what I would find. I just realized there was a lot that I didn't know, and I began to analyze the data in order to discover more about how those variables mm-hmm. relate of of, of uh, identity and biology and so on. So the questions always always included how old are you, and they also always included zip code, and. This was pretty interesting because you know there there are a lot of graphs in the book as as you've as you've seen yes <laughs> like um you know well over a hundred which is unusual for you know for um for a book and why I had some trouble finding a publisher actually um, <laughs> are you a numbers guy though I'd imagine you're a numbers guy you're a data guy right yeah I am I am I mean so you needed some graphs I don't blame you I actually found I found I'm not a math person like I math intimidated me my whole life. But I found your graphs so helpful to the context of what I was reading, because it did really do a good job clarifying exactly what you were describing in the data. So I think the the graphs in this book are very complementary to the story you're telling, because you're it's a narrative book, which yeah. is fascinating because it's a, it's also about data. But I, I thought that they really helped bring them home. But anyway, we cut you off. No, Continue. I'm so glad. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that because uh, you yeah, know, I I am also a stories person personally. I, you know, yes. I like both yes, narrative clearly. and data. And, um, and the point of putting in the data for me was not to make it a nerdy book, but to kind of show rather than tell a bunch of the you know especially more more controversial or more interesting points in the book to to just you know show why it is that, right. that you know that, that I'm drawing some of the conclusions that I that I am and, and to allow the reader to draw their own conclusions too. Yes, right. And I think that you talk a lot about how obviously our identity politics are dividing us. So I yeah. do think that 
when you just go to the data, you know, what is there to argue, but these are the responses and here's how they're plotted. Exactly, exactly. We can always, we yeah. can always discuss interpretations and, you know, sometimes there are different interpretations, but the data are the data and it's good, it's good to try and ground ourselves in that as well as we can. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the results, particularly as it comes to gender and sexuality and identity. You found some really interesting things about what is happening with younger respondents versus older respondents. Can you give us a sense of, you know, what are you seeing are the trends? What what did the data show you around gender and sexuality is happening as we are going forward into the future? Yeah. So the, the reason the reason I brought up the I brought up the graphs is because uh, the majority of them plot responses either as a function of age or as a function of population density. Right. And you know, the population density you can compute from the zip code because the Census Bureau has like the area of every zip code as well as how many people live in it. So you divide the one by the other, you get density. And yeah. and the reason for that is that is that those patterns, changes by age and changes by density, were overwhelmingly the you know, seemed like the most important patterns in the data. And and what they show is that, you know, first of all, uh, younger people have a lot more identification with uh, with minority identities of all kinds than older people do. Mm-hmm. More queer people, more bi people, more non-monogamous people, and so on and so forth. So, you know, kind of no matter what identity you can think of, with actually one interesting exception, which is intersexuality, but pretty much everything else, you know, it's really high among the young and declines a lot uh, among the older population. Uh, so something is definitely changing. Do you have a theory as to what is changing? Yeah, I, I I do. And the simplest way to talk about it is that is that identity goes along with culture, and the more community people find, which historically has been driven by move, the movement into cities, the more they find communities of affinity or communities of interest, and and that also explains why you see the same pattern in density. So when you look at, mm-hmm. at people in cities, they also are much more. Associated with, uh, you know, with with identity, it's almost like you know, being young and being in a city go together. Even if you're older and you're in the city, you're more like a younger person in that sense. You're there. Are, there are more identities. Uh, there are more minorities, and the and the more you look in in the countryside, actually, the older people get, but also the more homogenous they get, and and the and the less identity plays a role in things. And what I mean by the mm-hmm. less identity plays a role in things is like take bisexuality as an example. If you're in the countryside and you say I'm bisexual then the likelihood is that that describes what you're doing. Uh, in other words, I am right now actually you know, having relationships with, with people of both sexes. Whereas in the city, people will identify as bisexual even if they are, say, you know, married to somebody of the opposite sex and have been for a long time and are not acting on it. So the, the identity aspect of things becomes more important than the behavioral one, the more you are in a community of, uh, of other like-minded people. Huh. So now that has me thinking. So let's talk about this us versus them. Yeah. So when you plot that against the us versus them that's going on, and actually, could you do our listeners a favor and define like you do in the book, what, what us versus them means? Sure. Right now, you think in our country? Oh, uh, well, it's, it's, I mean, polarization, which is the, you know, the story of what's happening in our, in our politics, uh, you know, of course, and, and, and also what's happening with the culture wars, the, the, way, the way everybody is kind of setting up political battle lines based on identity. You know, it, it, I think that if we go back a few decades uh, in American history, you know, people used to have a variety of different opinions about, you know, about various policies or, uh, you know, or various beliefs, but it wasn't quite so lined up 
you know, where you had to sort of have the party line on everything, depending on how you identified. Right. And, and, and that, that sort of uh, privileging of identity over, over any specific issues or over the, you know, the ability to sort of think things through strikes me as a, as a pretty dangerous trend. And, and, and the more you other, uh, you know, some group of people who, you know, you've decided or not, you know, don't believe the right things, you know, are, are other, the more you dehumanize them. Uh, and and I, I see mm-hmm. that, you know, personally, I see that happening on both uh, the right and on the left. Uh, and, and it's worrisome. Right. It's Absolutely. making this 2024 election feel yeah. very overwhelming, Agreed. for sure. Agreed. When we think about gender and sexuality, then in rural areas, there's this map in here that I thought was really cool that has an overlay that shows you, you know, Democrat versus Republican voting areas. And, you know, you're obviously seeing those blue clusters in the urban areas and then you know, jarringly, the majority of the com- country is red because of, you know, the middle part. What happens to identity if you identify as LGBTQ plus in those rural areas? What are you seeing? Are we trending towards something else? Is is that going to change that political map in any way? How are you seeing rural areas change as more and more younger people are identifying as LGBTQ plus, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, and in a way, the most important question in the book, I think, because mm-hmm. you know the the big mega trend of the last ten thousand years is people concentrating into cities and and the countryside emptying out, but it doesn't empty out in a uniform way. If you are gay and you grow up in the countryside, you're almost certainly going to move to the city because that's where mm-hmm. that's where you will find your people, and uh, mm-hmm. and and the problem is that then that results in an increasingly homogenous countryside. So not only is the countryside becoming more sparsely right. populated, but it's also becoming a lot more uniform. And when, when you look at, at things like you know, voting patterns, you know, do, you, do you plan to vote for Trump or, or for Biden? Actually, I haven't, I haven't run the survey this year. I'm, I'm almost a little bit afraid to, but I, but I did run it for the 2016 <laughs> and 2020 elections. And there is no you. other variable that correlates as sharply with that as density. You know, if you're in the countryside, wow. you're going to vote Republican. If you're in the city, you're going to you're going to vote Democrat. Wow. And 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 I you know I asked a bunch of sort of more specific questions about beliefs, like do you believe homosexuality is morally wrong? Nobody in the city believes that homosexuality is morally wrong. A lot of people in the countryside do, and yet right. there are there are you know very few out gay people in the countryside. Um, if you ask, right. uh, are you concerned about Sharia law? being imposed in the US. Nobody in the city is concerned about Sharia law being imposed in the US. The the percentage in the countryside is really high. It's up around like half, despite the fact that there, oh, wow. there are virtually no Muslims uh, in the countryside in the US. So, you know, what, what's so interesting is that the fear of the other grows in the absence of the other. And the reason that this is such a uh, is such a dangerous mix with the way politics works in, in the US is that uh, political power is partly a function of, of land area. You know, that's, that's why we have like, a, you know, two Senate seats per, per state. It doesn't matter how populous the state is or why, right. you know, we have these congressional districts, right? That even if they're very sparsely populated, they still, you know, they still get congressional seats. And, um, and so as the countryside empties out, you know, the very small numbers of very homogenous people left there have, have really disproportionate political power. And that's why we've seen the popular vote and, uh, and the, um, you know, and the and the official vote diverge uh, in in recent election cycles. Yeah, 
Wow. I was going to ask, you say in the beginning of the book that you were on a podcast in 2016 where they were sure Hillary, Hillary was going to win and you were like, no, the data is showing opposite. So I was afraid to ask you that question too. I'm glad you haven't looked into it. Yeah. I don't want to know the I, answer. <laughs> I kind of want, I want to know. I need to emotionally prepare. I haven't opened that, that Pandora's box well, myself. I live in the countryside countryside, and I actually live in an area where it's very split. Mm which feels strangely very overwhelming. I bet, yeah, I bet. You know, we're talking about the othering, and and in the book you talk about nationalism, racism, classism, really articulate, articulately, you. and you talk about how they play a part in the othering of LGBTQ plus people. Can you speak to this, to this idea of nationalism, classism, racism and how they play into othering based on sexuality. Well, there are a lot of different axes for identity. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, like people tend to line up uh, on one side or another of, of you know, the, the, the more the more we polarize, um, the more everything sort of starts to starts to pull apart. Yeah. The 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 pattern that I have seen within the US and, and the, my data are, are really, you know, all US data because you know, it was easier to survey there, and I, I speak mm -hmm. the language well, and I understand more of the more of the cultural nuances. I didn't feel equipped to do that internationally, so you know, it'd be really interesting to repeat some of these surveys internationally too. But, but the pattern that I saw was that um, American nationalism is much much stronger in the countryside where the population is more homogenous. Um, right. The cities are where immigrants come. Uh, you know, so if you if yeah. you immigrate to the U.S., you will almost certainly. Uh, you know, end up in a, in a city and not in the countryside. And so, you know, diversity, just like with LGBTQ kind of stuff, right? Uh, uh, diversity of languages and of cultures is also uh, high in the cities and low in the countryside. Even, uh, even the black population, which of course, you know, has been in the US for a lot longer than most of the white population, you know, <laughs> has, has been driven out systematically from the countryside. One, one of the real shocks for me was, was uh, reading about how the USDA's farming policies and you know sort of lending policies for uh, for rural farmers has caused right. uh, like a huge uh, majority of black farmers in the countryside to lose their land over the last century. So it's become completely right. white. Wow. Ironically, you know, nationalism is high in the places where where the American population is actually not representative of you know of, of who Americans actually are nowadays, but maybe with some imagined past, you know, from the 1950s or 1960s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all so interrelated. Blaze, I, and I tell me if this isn't correlated. I was really, I loved this connection you made. And, and you talked about this book, uh, Philosophy of Marriage by Michael Ryan, that was written in the 1800s, as you talk about monogamy. And you say, basically, monogamy, monogamy must be enforced so that capitalism and patriarchy can be preserved. Tell us about that. Deep, and tell us comment. about... Right. Tell us about that. I just I underlined it because I was like, yep, truth. You know, when you feel truth from like the top of your head to your toes. <laughs> so tell us about that and tell us if that monogamy being one part that has to be enforced for capitalism and patriarchy to, to persevere, but also then identity around gender and sexuality has to fit in to this nuclear marriage model of heteronormativity, I'm assuming. So can you talk a little bit about that? Can I interject quickly? And only if you're comfortable speaking to this, I'm just curious what your personal situation is. Are you in a nuclear family setup? I'm just curious how you gained all of this perspective. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my own situation is pretty conventional. Uh, you know, I, this, I'm, I'm definitely not writing this, writing this book as, as an advocate or, uh, you know, kind of putting myself in the picture. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm married. We have like we have two kids. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like you know, you're the picturesque American family, exactly. Totally yeah. Flintstones, Jetsons. So, yeah. so I've, I'm I'm um I'm not I'm not you know so much you know writing my truth as as I am uh, you know being a uh, you know a curious and open minded data scientist and questioner and and just talking about what I'm what I'm observing what I'm seeing uh, without without trying to bring my own prejudices uh, into the picture. Um, but thanks for asking. Which I think it's a great perspective. I think that's a really fascinating, completely objective perspective on something that's critically important, particularly right now. Well, I mean, I mean, I do, I do want to, I do want to also like be careful here. I, I don't think that there is, there is such a thing as a completely objective perspective. And you know, where, agreed. Where Fully I, agreed. where I do have opinions that I'm bringing into the picture, I, you know, I, I try and, I try and make those explicit as well. I don't, I don't want to, you know. Uh, I don't want to be secretive about about those, but uh, but I also think that it's important to be able to do data analysis and write and analyze about things other than oneself. And I think you remain neutral, and I think the data speaks for itself as well. Thank you. I think that comes from a neutral perspective. Thank you. That was definitely the goal. Okay, so to the question then about monogamy yes. and and the necessity of monogamy and monogamous marriages for capitalism to. Tell us how, tell us more about that, but tell us, as I was saying, how does, how does gender identity and sexuality also play into the the pervasive culture being that in a capitalistic society where we live in a patriarchy, those things kind of work counter to, to the success of that system. Yeah. Can you explain that? I, I can try. Uh, it's this is yeah. a, this is a, a you know a, a long and complicated story. But in in the old days, I mean, we we don't we don't really know what human society was like, you know, pre in in prehistory. I mean, there there is we have archaeological evidence, obviously. You know, there there are some uh, some historians, archaeologists who argue that we used to have something more like a matriarchy. Uh, there are some, you know, perhaps in, in the uh, you know in the old hunter gatherer days. Um, I, I think the real answer is probably that it's complicated. Uh, there were there were a lot of different kinds of human societies if we go way back in time. And when I say way back in time, I mean we've got to keep in mind like humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, and right. you know all of our recorded history is basically just about the period since the dawn of agriculture. You know the last ten thousand or so. Right. So there is just you know a huge blank area. Uh, where I think a lot of people kind of project their own, you know, politics and their own wishes. Um, yes, but but I'm I'm, I'm kind of with with uh, you know David Graeber and David Wengro in their in their book The Dawn of Everything on the idea mm-hmm. that there was probably just a, a really wide variety of systems. Mm-hmm. And if we look at our at our our closest um, primate relatives, which you know might be a useful clue, they are the chimps and the bonobos, and. You know, it's a little bit too cartoonish to say like the chimps are are, patri- are patriarchs and the bonobos are matriarchs, but you know that's not a hundred percent wrong, right? We've kind of got okay. We've got both in the mix, um, you know, in terms of our our, our biological inheritance. Okay. But um, with farming, uh, I think what does start to become clear is that uh, when we settle and when we farm, uh, you know, that's when when property starts to become really important because you know now you you own your farm and and you own. Uh, if you like the the reproduction of all of the crops on that farm and, right. and your livestock and so on, and there is um, there are very strong indications that when that begins happening, men start to think about their women as their property as well, and right. you know, frankly, in just the same way that they think about their livestock. Um, I mean, it, right. that, that's a brutal thing to say, but you know, I, I think it's, it's a reality. Yeah, yeah. I actually, Blaze, I was um, just reading something about the word rape. 
and how the word rape meant theft, you know, in the 1800s even. Yeah. 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 And that then, so then rape means that you're taking something that's mine and making it impure. Yes. That's how it was applied to women. Yes. Yes. So to the point of what you're saying. Pretty, Pretty dark, right? Very dark. Yes. Absolutely. So as we get, you know, into our current reality around capitalism, or how is capitalism mm-hmm. affecting our identity politics today? Well, one, one, of the, um, one of the consequences of the idea that, you know, that the, the man owns reproduction and, you know, the woman is the, is the means for reproducing, it, it also goes along with the fact that children are property too. And the, the, the likely reason that we've seen birth rates plummet so much in advanced economies uh, and, and this is, you know, really worth dwelling on, by the way, like the, you know, the total fertility rate, which is to say the, uh, the average number of children per woman, you know, in, in the poorest country on earth today, which is uh, Niger, is about seven. And that was yeah. below the, uh, wow. the world average, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, 1900. So, wow. uh, you know, when you, you look at, at number of, of, of children per woman and, and wealth, the two correlate perfectly. And, and the reason is because um, back in the old days when agriculture was the, was the way we all made a living and, and the way we subsisted, children were valuable as workers. Right. Like, right. like the point of having, of having kids was that they were going to farm, they were going to generate more wealth, and they were going to support you in your old age. So, mm-hmm. um, so you, know, you, you reproduced because that was economically positive. We just commented on this the other day when one of my kids didn't want to do the dishes or something. And we were like, at your age, you'd be married off with exactly. children working on the farm. You could do the dishes. Yeah. I've tried to, I've tried to pull that with, uh, with, with my kids <laughs> It didn't well. work. No, doesn't it work. doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Ineffective. Yeah. But yeah. And I mean, as you know, uh, you know, and, and like we're, we're now looking at, you know, sending our second to, to college, like kids are no longer economically positive. The opposite. <laughs> Quite the opposite. <laughs> it's the opposite. And, um, you know, and, and, and there are many, you know, there are many reasons that we can talk about, you know, vis-a-vis choice. Obviously, you know, women starting to have a lot more of a say in what happens with their own reproduction is important. But I think that the, the, the root uh, change that has happened is, is that very simple one of just, you know, they were a economic good and now they're an economic cost. Uh, so from that perspective, you know, like what the point is, what is the, um, you know, when we think about what it means to uh, amass wealth or to be productive or, or, uh, or to propagate, like all of that starts to become more a question of ideas and of culture and of, uh, of other more abstract things versus just, you know, literally how many, how many children, how many acres of land and so right. on. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. I want to talk, I want to ask you another question about gender. And then I want to start talking about AI because you have a very oh my gosh. interesting perspective on the word we, which I want to get to. You know, I, I work a lot with non-binary and trans people as a coach. They've become some of my closest friends. I've been so proud of the steps they're taking to speak for a deeply underrepresented and vilified group um, of people in the face of a lot of violence in this country and in other countries. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is this idea of gender being a social construct. And I, and I see it come up in your book as well. I wanted to ask you about gender as a social construct over time. It shows in the clothes we buy for our children, blue or pink. Talk a little bit about how when I say gender is a social construct, can you break that down for our listeners? Because I think sometimes you hear that and you think, what do you mean? It's biology. Is it? And 
and and why? Why is it? Why isn't it? Yeah, it's I mean, it's a great question, and and it's one that it's one that um, I've always been a little bit worried about answering. You know, in 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 public settings and podcasts and so on, because it is it is itself so polarizing. Uh, and yes. and I think that I think that uh, insisting on a binary answer is actually part of the problem. So you know, in, ah. in a way, we have polarized it into like a yes or a no. You know, if you're if you're on the right. left, you're supposed to say it's a social construct; biology is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're on mm-hmm. the right, you're supposed to say it's biology. It's it's your your are you x x or x y? There's nothing else. The rest is bullshit. And um mm-hmm. uh, and and these two sides, of course, you know, believe that the other is you know is is other is <laughs> is awful. Um, the reality, I think, is is a lot more complicated than either of those binary assertions. So on the one hand, so many things about the way, uh, the way gender is portrayed, you know, on TV, uh, you know, or, or marketed are completely arbitrary. Uh, you know, is it, is it pink or is it blue? I mean, it used to be the other way around. Like this stuff is, you know, is, is, is a total, a total construct. Wait, what do you mean it used to be the other way around? Well, Did pink, pink yeah, used to pink, be a male color totally. at once a- Oh, yeah, really? Pink was the robust male color, and blue was the was oh, wow. the uh, the retiring uh, feminine color. Totally. I say we go wow. back to that. I love that. I, know. I say bring all the colors. Yeah. Bring every right, exactly. So yeah, that, there's, it's you know there's there's a lot of essentialization of gender of gender right. properties that that is just nonsense. On the other hand, I, I, I spend a little bit of time in the center of the book talking about John Money, the psychoendocrinologist at yes. Johns Hopkins, who you know, it turns out to have been a bit of a monster, yes. but was also like a real darling of second wave feminism for um, for really believing that that gender is is a social construct and actually putting that to the test um, by performing these uh, you know pretty horrendous medical experiments. Essentially, the most famous one, the the Raymer case, was a, a case of of two um, twins. This was a wild story. It's a wild story. It's a, wow, twin baby boys. Uh, they're brought in to be circumcised when they're when they're when they're infants. The circumcision is botched. One of them ends up uh, basically, you know, losing his penis, uh, and is brought into uh, to John Money's uh, practice. And Money's like, "Don't worry, uh, you know, if it, as long as we construct a vagina and raise and raise him as a girl, it's all going to be fine because gender is socially constructed." And uh, you know, spoiler. It doesn't go well. I was, was going <laughs> to yeah. say it wasn't fine. It was not fine. <laughs> it was not all fine. No, no. You know, there, there was there's obviously stuff. You know, in in the case of uh, in the case of, of of David Raymer that made him male in his in his own self concept uh, that went far beyond. Uh, you know, just sort of like what what his the way his parents socialized him. Uh, having said okay. that, uh, there is a whole spectrum there of 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 people, including a whole spectrum of flexibility. Um, you know, so one of the one of the weirder, I guess, you know, findings from from this period when when a lot of uh, sex reassignment or uh, or gender reassignment uh, surgeries were were done on kids uh, who had had their genitals mutilated, which is a surprising number actually. Like sometimes it wow. seems to have quote unquote worked. So it's not like you can say, you know, in a binary way, either yes or no. Uh, you mm. know, it's biological either. It's complicated. I'm curious what the further rights take is on intersex children and what should be done. I don't know. Did you mention that in your book or do you have a theory on that? The the rights the rights question meeting. The conservatives side on what how intersex children should be raised. Yeah. Um honestly I don't know. You know, one of the things about intersexuality is that because we tend to think about it as a medical condition like diabetes. Right. 
right? As opposed to an identity, it's, it's, um, it's hidden. It's a hidden identity, mm -hmm. or if we want to think about it as an identity at all. So, you know, one of the real surprises for me in the survey data was just how common it is. Uh, and again, that was shocking to me. Yeah, yes. yeah. So a bit of a spoiler, but you know, it's likely above two percent. It may be above three percent, uh, which is an, which an is astonishing. Far number. more than I ever imagined. Yes, yeah, totally. Um, and and unlike all of the other uh, identities that are very high among the young, the, the pattern by age is really a surprise too. It's basically zero at age eighteen, uh, the youngest age that I you know that I can that I can have people answer the survey, and it rises up until uh, you know up through the thirties and and. Uh, my, my guess as to why that is, is that most people don't know that they're intersex until right. they, you know, go to the go to the right. doctor. Maybe it's a fertility problem, and they and they find out. So, mm -hmm. um, and this yeah. is a legacy of John Money too, because you know, according to him, you should never tell your kid that they're that they're intersex because that will interfere with their socialization as as one gender or the other. And often the parents weren't told either. So. Um, you know, wow. it's, yeah, you it's kind of a My shock. Goodness. And when people find yeah. out, you know, in their in their thirties, I think you know the the most common response is not to you know become an out intersex person or to think about it as an identity, but think about it as a, as a private medical issue that is not going to mm -hmm. that is not going to get discussed with anybody else. Yeah, and you say in the book, intersex babies born in communities with less access to medical facilities have a very different outcome, less likely to know. Uh, less likely to get treated. Right. That's right. So, so I think I think that the you know the, the probably the short answer to your question is I I think that most of the of the right uh, probably just um, thinks that it's extraordinarily rare, even more so than right. the left, and so not not right. relevant to you know to any of these conversations. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so much to say about how important it is uh, that we're having public conversations so that people can begin to identify as what is true to them rather than be in this mystery or isolation of an experience that feels like their own. I mean, would you agree that social media and the way that people can own their identity more publicly and that being democratized has changed this trajectory of identity and the way people are responding to surveys like yours? For sure. As it becomes more normalized to, for example, be intersex, um, it becomes more acceptable for, for people to come out with that and think about it as an identity and, and normalize it. And I mean, I think that's a very positive development in the sense that the idea that, 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 that something is, uh, you know, that is, that is a part of your body, that is an aspect of you biologically is somehow a shame or something to hide mm -hmm. seems to me like, a, you know, like that would be a problem for your quality of life. So sure, anything that reduces absolutely. shame is good, although also obviously people should be free to, you know, to to keep whatever they want to keep private, private as well. Uh, I'm also a big believer right. in in privacy. So, you know, it's I, I guess it's a matter yeah. of choice, and 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 choice is maximized uh, uh, also if you don't feel shame. Absolutely, beautifully said. All right, well, we can't ignore what you do, which is um, you're an expert in machine intelligence and AI, and I think it's time to bring that into the conversation here. Yes. So tell us about the correlation you make around AI and this us versus them and this we. How does AI fit into that picture? Well, part of the big trend that we've been talking about of just polarization uh, is you know, I, this wasn't the case when I began writing the book in, 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 you know, in 2016, 2017, but AI has now also become highly polarizing. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm hearing you know on, on the one hand, AI doomers uh, talk about about AI as you know an other that needs to be uh, stopped before it's going before it leads to human extinction because it's an it's an either or uh, kind of kind of situation. You know, we're gonna, it's going to do to us what we did to the gorillas or something. Um, right. And uh, and I'm and I'm also hearing uh, you know I, I mean I, I guess I would call that sort of the the right or libertarian take generally speaking although you know this is a generalization. Right. And I'm also hearing from the left a lot of talk about AI being fake. You know, it's not it's not real. It's just a capitalist scam. Just a, it's all about labor and exploitation. Uh, it's essentially a way for capital to win over labor. You know, and and, uh, mm. and it's like a whole different set. And 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 there, you know, questions of justice, you know, right. take take precedence. But also, there's a denial that you know, it's, it's sort of this is all hype. You know, it's 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 just corporate right. hype. Personally, I I feel like both of those. Um, are are really problematic extreme positions um, for mm. for a few reasons. One of them is, you know, when I think about about symbiosis as being the the origin of all uh, of all of the interesting transitions in evolution in the past. You know, everything from like mitochondria, you know, uh, being incorporated into cells to make eukaryotes to you know multicellular life and so on. It's all about relationships that are so much more complicated than just competition, you know, of, of A versus B. Right. Like life becomes more complicated through things, you know, meshing together, um, not mm-hmm. not through one thing extinguishing another. Uh, you know, our what we've done to the gorillas or the chimpanzees is, is kind of the exception. And we are highly interdependent uh, with, with our technology. The technology can't exist without us. And, yeah. you know, increasingly, we can't exist without the technology either. Mm-hmm. So as I see it, Maura, you mentioned, you know, capitalism uh, you know, and its problems earlier. Like we have a big capitalism problem uh, in the sense that you know, if if as we develop technologies that increase our our our, our aggregate wealth, um, we are not figuring out ways to share those gains. Uh, that is a huge problem because uh, you know, both from a from a humanitarian perspective and from a polarization perspective, because we're now we're now creating, um, uh, you know, we're, we're really exacerbating uh, class divides. Which does not go in a in a good direction, mm. and and I see that as the central problem uh, that that we that we face as we start to you know exist in symbiosis uh, with with AI. But we're displacing a lot of those anxieties, uh, you know, into you know either believing that you know AI is other or that AI is just uh, you know it's just corporations and corporations are other. When I think we need to be having a, a kind of conversation in the middle, if that makes sense. So am I hearing you say that you believe the answer is somewhere in the middle, personally, with all of your knowledge? Because I'm not going to lie, I'm a liberal, but I'm a little bit of an AI doomer. Like I'm what's it just feels like it's growing so exponentially that it's going to we're going to lose control. Um, But I certainly do not have as much as much knowledge as you do. So it's very refreshing to hear that you believe there is a middle ground here. Well, control is a complicated word. Like we, you know, we the, the idea that the idea that like we humans are in control, we're on top. It's a hierarchy, right? Uh, is I think a little bit of an illusion. I mean, I, I talk I talk a bit about you know, for instance, our relationship with our crops, you know, with wheat, with with cows. You know, we're like, yeah, we're on top. You know, but uh, but there is another way of thinking about it, which is that you know wheat has taken over humanity as its uh, you know as its great propagator. You know, cows have taken have taken over. <laughs> you know, right? Like they, their their numbers have exploded even more than human numbers have exploded. They're you know they're right. They're they're um, you know they're certainly using up more of the land on Earth uh, because because they have manipulated our tastes in some way. Um, you know, or or cat, oh. or if you have, if you have a cat at home, like they don't. 
they don't do fuck all, you know, and, and right. right. And they, and they get, they get, they get it all, you know, uh, you know, like who's on top, uh, you know, the, the way, I, the way I see it, True. it's, it's not, not everything is slavery, right? It's not, it's not a hierarchy right. like that. It's, it is all about symbiosis. So I guess, I guess I, I, I question even the premise of the question, if that makes sense. Sure. Because what, what I'm hearing you say is that technology is us. Yeah. We are behind it. We are integrated to it. We are now attached to it. So it is, as you said, a symbiotic relationship, meaning that our evolution means that we are integrated with this technology. Yeah. And you say in the book, you know, what is we? We is also this technology. Right. It is a part of the we, that it shouldn't be othered the way that we do to other identities, because it's separating us in a way that is not organic. That is how I feel. And, um, you know, and I, I'm very, I'm very, you know, aware here of also being, you know, a Google employee. And, you know, like, I, I mean, I want to, I want to be very clear that like, um, the opinions that I'm expressing in the book are not, they're not sort of like uh, the, the corporate line. Right. You know, there are, there are a variety of things <laughs> I'm saying that I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to be associated with, with, with the company. It's very much my take. But, um, sure. but yeah, for what it's worth, my take is that it's very similar to the take of, of the performance artist, Stellark, uh, the Australian performance artist who has said, you know, we, um, technology constructs our humanity just as much as we construct technology. Right. You know, when, when we, when we think about why we have such a short gut, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and have such a hard time digesting raw foods, it's because we invented fire and fire has become a part of us. It's like our external digestive system. Mm. You know? wow. and, I, and I think AI is part of that same tradition, if you like. Beautiful. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Blaze, we have kept you for so long. I have two <laughs> last questions for you. I seriously could talk to you for three more hours. I mean, I'm truly. I'm fascinated. I'm yes. so fascinated. As you can see by my lack, my lack of speech, jaw open, no words. That is, that is, so, that is so flattering, you two. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, an incredible body of work that is um, both data and, as I said, uh, his, it's about our history as a species and about humanity. So to that point, two-part question, what is your biggest warning for us as humanity? Oh, and wow. what is your greatest hope given what you see from your vantage point? Yeah, uh, I guess they're one and the same. So um, my, my biggest warning is that, you know, we're in the throes now of becoming a planet, a planet-sized organism, if you like, a planet-sized being. And that's really important um, because, you know, it's only by becoming a planet-sized being that we are able to achieve homeostasis, uh, you know, achieve stability, um, sustainability. And, um, you know, we, we kind of are in a situation where we can only go forward or back. It's almost like we're in the birth canal. Like there's no going sideways. It's either forward or back. Uh, back would mean uh, return to being uh, you know, a species, you know, like humans being a species like any other species on earth, um, that, uh, that is subject once again to, um, to those Darwinian pressures where, you know, most, most children are, are, are die, die during uh, childbirth or in their first five years. And, you know, and, and we're basically in the mix, right. Along with, along with every other, every other animal that is, you know, that is sort of struggling to get along. Um, I mean, the likelihood of us going back to that state seems very low to me, but, okay. you know, that would be one route, I guess. Um, the other route is forward, where where we all learn. There's a big we, a big we that includes technology and that includes 
the other species on Earth, and that includes the Earth as a system that learns how to regulate itself, whether that's uh, economically, environmentally, politically, you know, and and um, for that to happen, we have to pull together. Uh, you know, the, when when we are othering uh, each other, when we're when we're in this kind of, uh, of of polarized us versus them conflict that I feel like we increasingly are in, we are not realizing that all of our interests have to be aligned for in order for that that um, that larger thing to happen. I I use the example of of um, unions and uh, the coal industry, for instance. Mm. You know, I I grew up like. Uh, with you know, listening to Pete Seeger and like you know, very very pro union, and I still am. But if the coal union is uh, you know is trying to say like you know we need to preserve uh, you know coal workers' jobs, and and coal is actually not a part of of our of our future, uh, those two things are 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 directly in conflict, uh, and they're only in conflict because we haven't accepted that all of the workers in the coal union are a part of that big us who have to be taken care of. If we were to address those those underlying problems of othering, then we kind of solve everything in one go. Now, I know that's a very optimistic, you know, that's a very optimistic wish. We're never going to be free of struggle. We're never going to be free of of political misalignment, etc. But I feel like it's it's becoming extreme uh, now in a way that that really uh, risks destabilizing our planetary future. Mm. Wow, what I think I mean, we can't end on a better statement there. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, our level of seeing ourselves as separate from one another is such a toxic illusion that we live under. And I'm so grateful for this work you've done and how um, diligent you've been about making this case in a way that people can't argue with because there's data. So who are we now? Go pick it up. Go order it. It is fascinating. Blaze, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your work? Thank you for asking. So, so yeah, the uh, Who Are We Now you know, is available from Haddon Beard Press uh, or from Amazon or at your local bookstore. Uh, it's also available for free online uh, at whoarewenow.net. Which is extra awesome. Wow. Yeah, the, you don't hear that yeah, very often. No. My cousin sent me a really cool interactive um, guide that you have yeah. that I think makes everything really tangible. The the uh, the idea behind put, I mean, of course, we wanted to make sure that it was online so that there wasn't any barrier to access, uh, but also the data are, are all there, and you know, we we did we did a bunch of work to make it beautiful and interactive. So it's not just a PDF; it's like a it's a real uh, it's it's a real you know work in its own right. I think even that is so aligned with your message of us versus them and everybody having access. And I think that's really beautiful. Thank you. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm very privileged in not having to make a living as, as an author sure. since I have, a, I have a day job. But, um, but yeah, my hope is also that making it, making it uh, widely accessible like that will, uh, you know, will reach more, will also just reach, reach more masses. people, right? including, yeah. including the physical book. And uh, uh, I'm on Twitter, or I guess it's now called X, and uh, and on Instagram as well. X. Uh, so I can also be found that way. And, and we, we you know we announce we announce like I'm starting to do book talks and things, so they're all they're all announced on there. Awesome, wonderful, and we'll add all of that to our Definitely. show notes for you listeners. If you would like to, I highly encourage uh, learn more about Blaze and uh, their amazing work. Blaze, thank you so much for spending this time with us. You were so generous with your time so and wonderful. your knowledge and your information and. I think you've really added um, so much to this podcast and for our listeners. Thank, so thank you. you so much. Thank you both so much for your for your awesome questions and, and for your and for uh, your interest. And for my deer in headlights look the whole time. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> I I was in awe, I promise. 
that is that is so sweet of you. Thank you. All right, listeners. <laughs> All right, take care. You too. Blaze, thank you again. Um, Bean, I'll see, see you again next, next week. week. Actually, I'll see you next week in California. Oh, that's right. In person. person. All right. Uh, If you want to support us, we would so appreciate you sharing this podcast uh, with your friends and family. And as always, leave us a review anywhere you listen. Thanks, guys. Bye. This has been another episode of Signal, the podcast that raises your frequency. This podcast is co-hosted by me, Maury Fontanez, and Melissa Gushka. Special thanks to my production team, Anushree Fekadeh, Arman Kassam, and Anais Islam. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. See you then.